The following message was given by Nick Kidwell, the senior pastor of Valley Creek Church. For more information about the church, visit us online at www.valleycreek.church. This Sunday, uh, we are wrapping up the first section of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is teaching, showing us what kingdom people should look like, people who live in light of the fact that they have been redeemed by the Lord Jesus Christ. For the past many weeks, we have been hearing from the Lord on how we're to relate to one another. Each of these have used the formula, you have heard it said, but I say to you. Jesus uses this to reveal how people misuse and abuse the law of God, seeking to get around the laws rather than practicing the actual principles that they are uh, intending to teach, the principles at the heart of them. We've spoken about anger, lust, divorce, oaths, and now we look at the last two items which show us how we as people ought to relate to those who have wronged us, to our enemies. So please turn with me now, if you would, to Matthew chapter 5. We're going to be reading verses 38 to 48. And I am going to pray for us before we do so. Father, we ask that you be with us this morning. We need your word to understand. We need your word. We need your spirit to help us understand your word. Lord, we ask this morning that you would help our hearts to see and believe the great love you've had for us, that we in turn might have great love for others, even those who are hard to love, even those who don't love us back. Father, help us to be a gracious, loving people and do this through the power of your word, by the power of your spirit this morning. We pray all of this in Jesus' name, amen. Matthew 5, 38. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, Turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For He makes His Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. This is the word of the Lord. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. (laughs) All right. (laughs) That is a statement. Let's sit there for a moment before we move on to the rest. This, This harkens back to the Lord's call to Israel in Leviticus, for I am the Lord your God, consecrate yourselves therefore and be holy for I am holy. But Jesus, he takes this a step further here. Israel was called to holiness 
through keeping the commands of God, but the problem was, as we've seen over the past many weeks, often the Lord's people use the law in a way that it was never intended to be used. They sought loopholes, figured out practices that might have followed the letter of the law, but certainly went against its intent. What the Lord is saying to us here is no more of that. That's not befitting of a kingdom person. When the Lord says, you've heard it said, but I say again, he's not dismantling the law, but he's saying the law has been twisted and misused. I call you to something higher. I call you to something that is above items in the law books. I call you to perfection, to holiness, to purity inside and out. I don't look for loopholes, says the Lord. I'm perfect. So you likewise be perfect. The Lord's not looking for people who know how to follow a rule. He wants people who hunger and thirst for righteousness. So we know we won't be perfect in this life, but the Lord's calling us to have hearts that long to follow His. And all of these teachings have sought to weed out what's going on in our hearts to help us hunger and thirst for that righteousness. And perhaps one of the most challenging areas for us to do this is in response to wrongdoing. How does our heart respond when we are wronged? This has always been a challenge for the human heart, but it's especially challenging for us given our cultural moment. We live in an outrage culture, in a cancel culture. We make snap judgments And pronounce sentencing in the court of popular opinion. If someone offends you, you drop them. If someone hurts you, you hurt back. The internet, this is my description of the internet. It's a hotbed of angry tongue lashings. Frequent curses called down upon others. And a place of unending wrath swirling in a black hole of self-righteous tirades. (laughs) That may be a bit of an overstatement, but I really don't think it's that far off. I see your demeaning tweet, and I'll raise you an offensive meme. Well, the Lord beckons us this morning to take a step away from all of that. He wants us to handle our offenses in a way that's different than the world. Now, as we'll discuss, justice is not wrong. Don't hear that. But the Lord calls us to something more than a mere eye-for-an-eye mentality. He calls us to walk in his footsteps. Like Christ, kingdom people ought to be people who lay their lives down for the sake of others, even others who oppose them. This can be a hard teaching to hear, and it can be an even harder teaching to live out. Like so many topics that we have discussed, it can also raise a lot of questions. And so as I was preparing this week, I'm sure there's all these different scenarios that will come to mind, questions that we have, but we have to cling to what the Lord is saying to us, though, here in this passage. But I do want to say a few things up front. First, this teaching is primarily speaking to individuals. This isn't saying there's no place for justice Lord's not saying here there should be no governments or court systems. We know from Scripture that the Lord Himself established governments to promote good and to punish evil. So the Lord is speaking to us as individuals. How do we 
who have no governing or authority respond when we've been individually wronged by another? What should our heart response be? Second, though we'll talk a lot about not demanding our rights from others, it's not an outright ban on ever speaking up for ourselves. I'm not saying that this morning. Like all other teaching thus far, we live in a broken world and there is a time and a place for pursuing justice. Third, most of what the Lord is getting at are hearts that are self-focused. He wants us to be people who lay our rights down, who are, who are willing to lay our rights down for the good of others. That means while we may be led to lay our rights down for the sake of our enemy, we don't lay the rights of other people down for them. We should be people who care for others, seek to protect others, and at times take up the cause of others because we're people who love others. And finally, if you have been significantly wronged by another person, I'm sorry for your pain, and we mourn with you, and the Lord knows your pain, and the Lord cares for you. And you better believe he has, is, and will be taking up your cause if you have turned to him. He's working all things together for your good, as Kyung reminded us of this morning. Now, I think it's necessary we have those caveats and those nuances, but I don't want that then to weaken the emphasis of the Lord's teaching. We don't want our immediate response to be looking for loopholes. Okay, I hear what you're saying, Jesus, but when can I get angry at someone? When can I seek out vengeance? When can I push back? When can I drop a friend who's hurt me? And so on. Our greatest longing shouldn't be to get to punish, but our greatest longing should be to exhibit grace and forbearance, forgiveness, generosity, and love even towards those who don't love us. That's what the Lord is trying to speak to us today. So we're going to look at these two calls and consider that we have a call on our life to forbear when we've been wronged and to love those who've wronged us. So forbear when we've been wronged. You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. The Lord is referencing several occurrences in the Old Testament law here about the way to handle offenses. The intent of the law was that the punishment should fit the crime. And while the law is speaking in the context of the judicial system of Israel and was the prescription for how a judge should execute justice in the face of unfortunate sin, the people had taken this eye-for-an-eye mentality to heart in a way it was never intended to be. They desired to be judge and jury and lived in a mindset of retaliation rather than a mindset of grace. Well, the Lord wants to shake them of this. And to do so, He lays out for them this series of illustrations, quite vivid illustrations for them. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. This particular example is not so much about physical abuse, but dishonor. To slap on the right cheek was a backhanded slap, a slap of shame. The Lord's saying here, if someone dishonors you, don't fight back. 
Don't get in an honor war with them. Set your pride to the side. In fact, not only should you not resist them, but you should offer your other cheek to strike as well. This isn't so much an actual call to offer your other cheek, but it's an exaggeration highlighting the humility we are supposed to show before others. Hold your tongue in the face of your accusers. That can be challenging for us to do. But the Lord doesn't stop there. He goes on and he says, If anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. Most people in Jesus' day did not have closets full of clothes like we all likely have at home. They had a few key items. Most of them had a tunic, which was a long robe-like undergarment, and a cloak, which was the heavier, more expensive outer garment. It would be an embarrassing loss if you didn't have your tunic. One needs their tunic. Imagine if someone took all of your undergarments and you had no means of replacing them. Well, that was the situation, and you would expect one to fight tooth and nail to hang on to it like that. But the Lord says, no, don't fight. In fact, let him have your cloak as well. Now, don't miss what the Lord's saying here. To have lost your tunic and your cloak essentially meant that you'd be left naked and exposed. (laughs) In the Old Testament, the law regulates against someone taking your cloak Because cloaks were often used for warmth at night, the Lord even required that if a cloak was taken and pledged, that it needed to be returned by the evening. Yet here's the Lord, He's saying, give it up, let it go, hand it over. Again, there is hyperbole at play here. The Lord isn't calling us all to walk around naked, but He's making a point. And if this weren't enough, He then says, if anyone forces you to go one mile... Go with him too. This is referencing the practice of Roman soldiers being permitted to stop civilians and compel them to carry their military gear for a Roman mile. This practice was not only inconvenient and burdensome for the civilian, but again, it was an embarrassing one as well, especially for the Jew who was under this foreign occupation. They hated The idea of these Roman overlords, and here they are having to carry their military supplies. Yet the Lord says, rather than resent, rather than resist, go along with the mile. And indeed, don't only go one mile, go an extra mile. He then concludes, give to the one who begs from you. Do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Now, while this doesn't immediately seem to follow the pattern of the other examples, what the Lord's getting at here is the practice of people safeguarding themselves from being taken advantage of. People unwilling to give out of fear of losing what they have. People unwilling to give out of fear that someone might not return what they have borrowed. To this, the Lord says, go ahead, lend, be generous. And I'm sure that most of us in this room hear this list and again, we're, we're thinking of the caveats. We want to know the nuances. We think, surely the Lord does not mean all that He's saying here. And even if the Lord is using some extremes here to heighten the point that He's making, even if the Lord isn't saying that we have to actually do some of these specific things, He is saying we should have a heart that is, laying to will, is willing to lay down our rights For the sake of other people. But to this we say, isn't the Lord a God of justice? Doesn't God want us to uphold the law? 
Aren't our rights good things? Shouldn't we demand them? Are we supposed to just roll over and let other people take advantage of us? Now, these are all good questions. And yes, God is a God of justice. And yes, God wants people to uphold the law. And yes, we do have rights. And yes, our rights should be honored. And no, God does not want people to take advantage of us. However, what the Lord is saying is that we have an opportunity. As God's kingdom people, as God's kingdom ambassadors to live in a way which the world does not. Trusting in someone who the world knows not and displaying a grace that the world cannot. In the book of 1 Corinthians, Paul confronts the Corinthian believers for taking each other to court. Paul comes down pretty hard on them. For one, he says, why are you going to the public court systems to parade your issues in front of the world? Is there no one among you who can resolve this? We are going to judge angels in the age to come. Can we not help each other through a petty dispute? But then he says, to have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? We don't hear that in the world, do we? That is not something we will hear. The Lord's essentially saying here, it is better to trust God and extend grace than it is to forcefully assert our rights and avenge. Now, again, a few things to note here. This is a willing decision. The Lord's not forcing us to relinquish our right to retribution, but rather He's imploring us that there's a better way, the way of grace. And He certainly isn't saying don't try to resolve an issue or a conflict. Don't ask for something back that's been taken. But He's saying if one continues to resist or fails to act righteously, vengeance isn't our inevitable response. And finally, again, the Lord's not calling us to put ourselves or others in harm's way. He's not saying, seek out someone to slap you or find someone to sue you. But what do you do once harm has come upon you? Which, in this life, is inevitable. So, why then should we rather suffer wrong? That's quite the statement that Paul makes why should we rather be defrauded? Why should we forbear? Well, for one, this is the Lord's way. Oh, how God has been so patient with us. I love the parable of the unforgiving servant. The servant begs and pleads. We're, we're the servant, by the way. The servant begs and pleads the king. That's God. We're not God. We're the servant pleads the king not to throw him in prison for the money that he owes. The king forgives him. Then the servant goes to a fellow worker who owes him a little bit of money, and he's nearly strangling the guy, saying, pay me what you owe me. That servant forgot all that he had been forgiven of. Paul says at the end of the passage that we just read in 1 Corinthians, but you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. He's saying forbear and forgive because you yourselves do the very things towards others that they are doing towards you. We're all sinners in need of grace. 
When we demand repayment for wrong done to us, often we can be reflecting a heart that doesn't understand the grace and the forgiveness that we have been shown through the Lord. Another reason this is better is because it shows that we are entrusting ourselves to the Lord. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay. God tells us that one day He will make all things right in the end. Every wrong will be accounted for. Every wrong. That should make us praise the Lord for His forgiveness in our life. Every careless word, every evil thought, it will all be accounted for. That means either that wrong was paid for on the cross by Christ or the wrong will be paid for by an individual in hell. When we have a heart that is set on vengeance and personal retribution, we have a heart that does not believe that God will do what He says He will. We don't have to defend our honor. God will do that in the end. Additionally, forbearance shows that we are kingdom people who value kingdom things more than we value this world. We don't have to fight for our honor because honor in this life is fleeting. We don't have to fret the loss of material goods because the Lord will meet our needs and we know our greatest need has already been met through Christ Jesus, our Lord. And we don't have to seek retaliation because we trust that the Lord will make all things right in the end. And finally, we forbear because we live in the age of gospel invitation. With the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ on behalf of sinners. Christ has opened up a way for all men to be with God through Him. Yes, the Scriptures reveal that Christ is Savior and Judge, but the ultimate time of judgment has not yet come. We pursue forbearance because that's what our Lord has done for us. We read in the book of Philippians, though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Christ Jesus had more rights than any of us to be respected and honored. Christ did not sin. He didn't deserve any pain, but only peace. Yet He took on the eternal wrath of God the Father on our behalf. He had power indescribable. He could put any of His opponents in their place with the blink of an eye. Yet He didn't do that. Because on His first coming, the Son of God came in gentleness and humility to seek and to save the lost. Christ hung on the cross and he died, but not because he was weak. Christ was not surprised by the cross. Christ was not naive. Christ was not a pushover. Christ knew all that was going to happen to him, yet Christ, in his great strength, hung on the cross, and rather than shout obscenities at those who wagged their heads and spit at him, he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. 
I got so upset last night, we went and saw a movie, and the kid behind me kept squeaking his chair on purpose to annoy everybody. (laughs) The Lord's hanging on the cross, and he says, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. The world likes to paint a picture of those who are strong being the ones who fight for their rights. But the reality is it takes a lot more strength to patiently endure and lay our rights down. Again, I'm not painting a picture of someone who feels helpless and trapped, someone who unknowingly is a victim of abuse. I'm talking about a person who stands steadfast in the strength of the Lord and who willingly, for the sake of the glory of God and the good of others, lays down their rights that that through peace and forbearance they might display the selfless heart of Christ that some might be saved and peace might be born. We heard that in the Romans reading, so far as you can pursue peace. We're not to be people who seek out vengeance for ourselves because though the Lord is just, today there stands an offer of grace. One that the Lord has shown us so generously. And when we forbear in the face of opposition, we stand as those who herald the glory of Christ and speak of the grace that He gives. We want to be people when others look at us say, what's wrong with you? Why aren't you snapping back? Why aren't you sparring with me the way that I want you to? And we can say in response, there's a time for judgment, but it's not now. I want you to see the grace and the glory of Christ. One of the most vivid literary examples of this principle, and I just love it, and it comes to mind whenever we're talking about these things, is found in the classic Les Miserables. Jean Valjean, if you know this story, he's a petty criminal. He's released from prison on parole. He's taken in one night by this humble priest. And Valjean, in an act of betrayal, flees the house in the middle of the night, taking with him some precious silver from this humble, poor priest. Well, the police catch him, return him to the priest, and the priest, in looking at him, rather than saying, yes, you caught him. Good, I'm glad to have my silver back. He looks at Valjean and he says, no, I gave it to him. And actually, he forgot some things, and he gives him more. And Valjean is wrecked by that and turns and repents and comes to the Lord because of this act of grace. It's frustrating and confusing to someone if we don't snap back to them. Imagine the courtroom scene where the defendant says, You know what, Your Honor? This man has no right to my tunic, but I desire to give it to him, and I'm going to give him my cloak as well. If you want to disrupt the system, that's how you do it. This is the spirit that we want to exude. This is what the Lord has done for us. And he's done this for us in love. And that takes us to the second teaching here that we are to forbear when we've been wronged and we are to love those who have wronged us. You've heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. This actually isn't a quote from the Old Testament law exactly. The Lord never tells us to hate our enemies. He does tell us to love our neighbors as ourselves, But then it seems popular teaching was that we are to hate our enemies in contrast to the love that we are to have for our brothers. Well, the Lord corrects this erroneous teaching, and He builds on His previous thought. It's one thing for us to choose not to retaliate, hold our tongue, 
but stew inside. It's an entirely another to actively love those who hate us, to seek the good and the benefit of those who have wronged us. Yet this is the heart of our Father in heaven. As our verse says, we do this so that we may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. This doesn't mean that loving our enemies makes us sons, but it means loving our enemies shows that we are sons and daughters of the living God in the way that we behave. Sons and daughters of a God who makes the sun rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. God who says, As I live, declares the Lord, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked would turn from his way and live. People can have an image of God that he's angry, that he's this vengeful tyrant sitting up in the clouds just ready to strike at any moment. Nothing could be further from the truth. Yes, God is just, and yes, God will punish He will ultimately work out justice in the end. He can't let wickedness go unpunished. But God is, as we know and we see throughout all of Scripture, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, whose mercies are new every morning. God didn't just immediately strike Adam and Eve down when they sinned, but He set a plan in motion for salvation. God gave the land and the people of Canaan 400 years to accumulate their iniquity and their sins before he brought judgment on them. God gave Pharaoh repeated chance after chance to let the people of Israel go. God didn't just wipe Israel off the face of the earth, though they repeatedly failed over and over again. And God lets all of us enjoy this beautiful earth even though all of us have rejected him in one way or another, and though many persist in violent hatred towards him all their lives. If we ran the universe, think how quickly we would blot out those who break our rules or spurn our ways. Our hearts are so angry when our children are ungrateful with us. The world would have ended a long time ago if we were in charge. The ultimate cancel culture. Yes, sometimes God brings quick and swift judgment, but overwhelmingly, He gives time to repent. He patiently endures, and He does so in love. We read in verse 46, For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Don't even the tax collectors do the same? If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? The tax collectors were seen as pretty wicked people, corrupt and abusing. The Gentiles weren't the people of God at this time. And he's saying, even they love the people who love them. It's easy for us to love those who love us. It's not natural for us to love those who do us harm. Yet this is what our God does. Our God loves the unlovable. He loves those who hate Him. He loves His enemies. Romans 5 says, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. 
For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Don't believe that God loves his enemies? Look around this room. (laughs) It's full of former enemies of God who've been captured by his irresistible grace and his unending love. The Apostle Paul, who wrote the book of Romans we just read from, he knew this well. Before being saved by Christ, he was a persecutor of the church. He was out to kill Christians, yet God bestowed grace upon him. We have the privilege of knowing this love. And in knowing this love, we have the privilege of loving our enemies that they one day might come to know this love as well. So what does this practically look like for us? How do we love our enemies? Well, for one, we have to cling to God. Cry out for grace and ask for help to do this by the power of His Holy Spirit. Because without the Spirit, it would be impossible for us to love other people this way. And it's okay if it takes time for the Lord to work on our hearts We ask the Lord for the ability to forgive, the ability to love, the ability to seek the good of those who have wronged us. It can mean something as simple as greeting and showing kindness to one who's not done so for us. We aren't to be people who give the cold shoulder. It can mean forbearing and not demanding our rights from others, as we've said. A simple example, someone steals your parking spot, cuts you off on the road, how do you respond? Road rage? Ride their bumper? Or patiently forbear? And pray for them. It means we should be the first to bend in a disagreement. Not because we're getting steamrolled, but because we know the grace of God and we're seeking peace and the good of others means we desire repentance for those who do wrong to us. And we pray for those who do not know the Lord that they might come to know His grace. And while most of us in this country aren't facing serious persecution for our faith, the early believers were, and many of our brothers and sisters around the globe are, and the Lord is challenging us all, even in the face of such evils and atrocities as death for the sake of Christ. We're still called to love. Paul, while in prison, witnessed to his enemies, showing them love, extending them grace, and many of them believed and repented of their sins. And there are countless stories of martyrs over the years who, up to the point of death, spoke grace, walked humbly, showed love and care, and others were affected by that. We hope that all things will be righted. We know that all things will be righted. The Psalms are full of laments crying out to God for justice, and they're not wrong. But we hope, above all things, that those wrongs are paid for by the blood of Jesus Christ, not by the eternal punishment of the wrongdoer. What a wicked thing it is when another person says to someone, burn in hell. That is violent and it's vile. And if we're honest with ourselves, many of us likely at least have felt that emotion rise up within us. We should, along with the Lord, take no delight in such punishment. 
we should look on those who sin against us and oppose God with pity. We have the strength of the Lord. We have nothing to fear. We have nothing to lose. But we have much to gain in our forbearance of wrongdoing and in our love for our enemies. We store up for ourselves treasures in heaven and we will win many over to Christ along the way. Again, do not hear there's never a time and a place to address wrongdoing. There is. And sometimes us seeking retribution is a means of protecting others from experiencing the same thing in the future. Litigation is not evil and can, in fact, help protect us from evil. We just don't want to be people who are hungry to avenge. And if you're here this morning and you've not trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ as your God, it would be wrong of me to not say plainly, you stand right now as an enemy of God. All of us in this room did at one point. But God, because He is rich in mercy and love, has given you another day. Another day to turn to Him. Another day to repent of sin. Another day to praise His glorious name and His unending grace. His Son, Jesus Christ, died on the cross for your sins because He loves His enemies and He wants to make a way for people to be with Him in heaven. And He did this for you. But if you resist, there is a day of vengeance coming. This God is loving and patient, but this God is just. And it will be an awful day for those who remain rebellious to the end. It will be a day of weeping and gnashing of teeth, utter darkness and eternal torment. Repent of your sins. Turn to the Lord and know this gracious, loving God. While that opportunity still remains. In church, let's believe the fact that one day all wrongs will be made right. If you suffer now for doing good, know that a day is coming in which the Lord will punish all who have not repented. He will execute perfect justice for every evil deed. And we can walk now as people of grace who've received grace and show that grace to others that they might be spared from that punishment that we have been spared of. Let's all turn to Christ Enjoy His love and receive His forgiveness. Let's be a people who love when it's hard to love, who forgive and forbear when it's most natural to fight back and avenge. I have to confess this week there were numerous situations that popped up in my mind where I was convicted writing this message. It's my heart wanting to stick it to someone, wanting someone to be in their place, wanting them to know that they were wrong. Let's not be those kind of people. We don't want our heart to be in that place. And we do this, we lay down our lives for others, we seek the good of others, not because we're weak, but because we have the strength of the Lord our God. Because we have a Savior who is eternally powerful, yet did this for us to save us. And we get to show this Savior. We get to show our great King to the world. Let's pray. 
Father, we thank you for your grace. Thank you that you have saved us. Thank you that though we were your enemies, you have shown us love and mercy and forgiveness. And Father, we ask that you work on our hearts, that we could exhibit the spirit of our Lord Jesus Christ. That when we look upon those who do harm to us, when we look upon those who persecute us, those who oppress us, we can say, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Thank you, Jesus, that you have said that about us. And thank you, Lord, for the forgiveness that you've shown us. Help us to be people who love. Help us to be people who are full of grace, mercy, and truth. And we pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. You've been listening to a message by Nick Kidwell, given at Valley Creek Church. For more information on the church and other messages, please visit us online at www.valleycreek.church.